Hello, and welcome to the podcast on Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. And I'm really, really excited to be talking about what we're going to be talking about today and for the next few weeks. I'm not sure exactly how long, uh, but I believe this is something the Lord has probably woven into the fabric of who I am. Theologically, uh, my, my worldview is built around what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to be talking about keys to the kingdom, a kingdom mindset. What does this mean to, to God and how did Jesus come and, and kind of expound upon it? What is this paradigm? What is this way of thinking, this way of living? keys to the kingdom. And so I'm really, really excited to be starting this series. But before we do, would you join me and just go into the Lord in prayer together? Father, I thank you. I thank you that in this moment uh, in our lives, specifically like a, a small snapshot, God, that you are involved in every single detail. And God, we see that we have this, um, we have this window that we are walking upon the, the timeline of eternity to see how you are working in our lives and in our world. And God, we just invite you. We invite you to uh, use us. We make ourselves available. We surrender things, God, that are going to keep us from fully engaging with that call and that purpose and that design that you have for us. And Lord, today we just ask that you would begin to reframe our way of thinking reframe the way that we see the world, reframe the way that we interact with one another, those that are part of your kingdom and those that are yet to come into it. God, would you shape us? Would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you empower us? We thank you for the victory that you give, and we give all honor to you, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you've hung out with me even for just a little while, if you've you know, heard me pray a few times, heard me talk, you'll probably hear this language in almost anything that I say. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And, and uh, I think that I would, I would interact with folks that maybe had gotten kind of a focus somewhere else. And, um, you know, even I'll just be honest, I'm not an end times guy. I don't, I don't, I don't read all those books and, and flow in that vein. I enjoy hearing a good Perry Stone every now and then. I, I enjoy some of the nuances of a Jonathan Co- I, You know, some of those are very informative to me, but that's not where I live, eat, and breathe, if you know what I mean. If, if I hear some of those things, or, or if there's others that maybe, you know, it's, it's evangelism, it's discipleship, and to me, all these things kind of boil down to what God has been attempting to establish from beginning to end, and that's his kingdom. That's his reign, that's his rule. And you'll hear nothing more come out of Jesus' mouth as he taught here on earth than the kingdom. And it's really interesting it's really interesting just to look at the New Testament and especially the Gospels about how Jesus uses the word, in, for instance, in the ESV translation, 126 times the kingdom is mentioned. But then in the rest of the New Testament, right, you take four books, which primarily it's the first three. It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, a, a little less so. But those 126 times in those few books compared to the rest of the New Testament that only mention it 34 times. 
And I hear the question a lot of, well, you know, Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven, and, and Mark and Luke call it the kingdom of God, and is it any different? And, and it's the same kingdom, it's the same reign, it's the same rule that our God seeks to establish here on earth. And for us, I believe it's imperative that we have a kingdom perspective to our lives so that we don't end up in the ditch in our theology or in our focus, that we don't end up distracted, that we don't end up even tossed to and fro by by all the theological things that we could be captivated by in the moment because it all boils, boils down to his reign and his rule. I think everything else supplements what God is trying to do in and through our lives in scope of his kingdom coming here on earth as it is in heaven. And so you hear questions like, well, what is the kingdom of God? And why does it get so much focus uh, from Jesus, but not from the rest of the New Testament? And those are a couple questions that I just want to talk about. You know, when the verse in, in Psalm 103, verse 19, it says this. It says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And so what is the kingdom? Well, the basic meaning of kingdom is his reign, not his realm. You know, not the space, not the location, not even the people yet, so much as it is his reign, his reign, his rule. You see, his realm doesn't reign over his realm. His reign rules over his realm. And so for, for us, I want us to start looking at how his reign, his rule, is overarching into everything in our lives, including his subjects, right? His people, those a part of his kingdom, hopefully you and I. And so as we look at the kingdom, we have to understand his plan from the beginning to redeem that which was marred and messed up, to reestablish his throne in not only our hearts, but in our lives, that everything that we would do would be about establishing his reign and rule again. And Christ began doing this, we see from the very beginning. And so I think I grew up, I'm a child of a revival. I, I was saved in renewal. It, it marked my life. It made who uh, Candy and I are, what we experienced um, in the 90s and, and what transformed, um, just radically changed our lives. It marked us. And I love revival. I love when God breaks out and does sovereign movements that, that man couldn't fabricate or work up. It is just a move of his spirit. But that is a demonstration of the kingdom. And I remember as a young teen getting caught up in the demonstrations. As a 15-year-old reading books about Smith Wigglesworth and you know wanting to see moves of God again like that. A demonstration of his kingdom. And it's so easy that you see the disciples go off and they're like, oh, but look, look at, look at how they're raising the dead or they're, they're prophesying in your name. And, and Jesus says this, he says, you can do these things and still not know me. You can demonstrate, you can even experience renewal and revival, but not be connected to the king in his reign and his rule, be submitted to his authority. And so the demonstration is only meant for one thing, and that is to establish his kingdom. The demonstration of his kingdom, the, the miracles that Jesus would perform were to testify that who he was was indeed true. That what he was claiming about himself, the Old Testament puts it this way, that in the mouths of what? How many witnesses? Two or three. 
And so you get the testimony of the demonstration of the man who was born blind that can now see, of Lazarus who, who had died, whose sisters come to him mourning, and Jesus enters into their weeping, but for a demonstration of the kingdom, declaring that what Jesus would say about himself to be true in the mouths of those testimonies of those miracles. And so for us today, I want us to look at how the kingdom comes and look at how even the idea of the kingdom, Luke puts it this way, he says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So even that demonstration is where the kingdom is breaking in, is entering into our realm, so to speak, where he takes reign and rule of something that wasn't first subjected to him. But how could the kingdom come into a place if it wasn't already there? And then he says this, he says, later on in Luke 17, he says this, nor will people say, oh, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is already in your midst. And so you've heard me talk a little bit about this tension of the already but not yet. And it's in our salvation uh, history, right? We, we have been saved, we are still being saved, and we ultimately will be saved. And the kingdom is no different than that same tension where it has been established from all eternity, but yet it is being established, and it ultimately, with the return of Christ, will be established. And that is when he will come and everything will be under his reign and rule forever. And we will, we will rejoice with him as king has taken his rightful place where everything that has been subjected to him gives him praise and glory and honor because he is the king again. And so there's this idea of, is it here? Is it, has it come? Is it not? But, but it's the tension of the kingdom of God, his reign to redeem and deliver his people has occurred, is occurring, and will occur. It's a future, it's a past, it's a present. It's the reign of the Creator in all His creation. So the second question that I mentioned, though, is why, though, does the New Testament talk about it less? Why do Paul and Peter and James and, and John and those that write the different New Testament books, why do they talk about the kingdom less than Jesus did? And I think it will help us to understand some of the phrases that they use still imply what the kingdom means. And so when I think you hear phrases like Jesus is Lord, where you hear the phrases of, uh, you know, the phrases of his lordship and, and him being we are his servant, and, and it implies that there is a king that is establishing a reign and a rule without even using those same words, kingdom, kingdom. And so I want us to look at a couple of really key verses today as we dive into this that I think is the very first time you see his disciples get it. So if you'll turn with me physically, we're gonna, I'm going to be looking at Matthew 16. We're going to start in verse 13. And I want us to spend some time from 13 through 20 in Matthew 16. And many of you, you're going to recognize this passage. It's, it's talked about a lot. It's, it's where Peter declares who Jesus is in response to Jesus' question. But there are some real nuggets in here for us understanding why this passage is repeated in each of the Gospels, and it really seems to be a climax in each one of them. It is the pinnacle of their writing. It's the pinnacle of the story and the movements. It is the, it is the place where things shift from a demonstration 
to his, where he's ultimately going to lead to the cross, his death. And so let's read this together. I'm going to start in verse 13 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the, re- the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Verse 14. They replied, oh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He says emphatically, he asks, he says, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh or by blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, Petra, and on this rock, Petras, I will build my church, Ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And he goes on, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. I always think that last verse is so interesting. Here I am. You have declared who I am. You have seen the revelation revealed to you from heaven, not of man. But keep it a secret. And you're like, what? Jesus, that's so backwards. I don't understand. We're going to establish your kingdom. This is it. We're we're putting you in your rightful place. And so let's just start. Let's kind of walk through this uh, verse by verse. I want to start in verses 13 and 14 of when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And so Jesus is walking through this place. And I think even a lot of the language that Jesus is about to use is kind of set by the atmosphere of of the location of where he's at. Caesarea Philippi, uh, the gates, the walls, the, the, the structure even of it, uh, the keys that were necessary. It, everything that he's about to talk about is really kind of in picturesque form at this location of Caesarea Philippi. And he's asking his disciples what they've already been discussing among themselves. What are the people saying about me? Who do they say I am? And so first you get the, the response of what the crowd is saying. What the crowd is saying about Jesus, and they begin to to give these different responses, right, about his identity, about who is he. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, as he often did, kind of a language that echoes the prophets of the Messiah, the one that was to come. What, What do they say about the Son of Man? And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record this, and they give these replies some a little bit different, but Matthew says, oh, first, you're John the Baptist. And it's believed that Herod, who had John the Baptist beheaded, believed that Jesus was John reincarnated, that he had come back to life. Here he was performing these miracles, and I think Herod even feared for his own life, feared that he would be exposed for what had happened, right? Because John had already prophesied about his wayward life, and thus his... his uh, the. You know, the daughter and, and, and the, the, the wife had, had John beheaded. And so we have now this story of, well, maybe, maybe this is John that's come back. And he's, gonna de- he's going to destroy this part of the Roman Empire. He is literally going to tear it apart by rallying, rallying people around 
his identity. And others said, oh, he's Elijah, right? Elijah that was taken away into the sky. There were these beliefs that, you know, the ones that had even been been taken away would come back as a forerunner of the Messiah, of the, the kingdom, the overthrow, the reign, the rule that they perceived to even be a physical thing that would happen in their day. And they're like, this, this is the one that, is, that was prophesied of the Elijah that, that we know Jesus even himself said that, no, that, that was John. John prepared the way, paved the way through his preaching of repentance and that the kingdom is at hand, right? Repent for the kingdom is near saying that Jesus was coming to establish and demonstrate the kingdom. And then finally, he's, they, they say that, well, uh, you know, people are saying that, it's, that you're John the Baptist, others are saying Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And only Matthew mentions Jeremiah. And a lot of that has to do with the Jewish audience that Matthew is writing to. But Jeremiah... Was, was at the beginning of the Latter Prophets. He's the first book in the Latter Prophets uh, in the Hebrew canon. And he was categorized among all of the prophets, right? When they say Jeremiah or one of the prophets, it, it even could be lumped together that he is, here he is, as one of the prophets, and Jeremiah specifically is one who would suffer but also see the reign and rule of a kingdom established. And so there's this idea that maybe maybe this is him come back. Maybe this is one of the prophets that is about to, uh, that, that is about to see something happen in our day and age where the Roman government will be overthrown. And Jesus, he shifts that, what do they say, in verse 15 to, what about you? This emphatic you, but who do you say I am? And this is really what Jesus was getting at, wasn't it? And I think in our own lives, when we could see right now, what, what is the world saying about Jesus? What is our media proclaiming? What, do, what are the uh, institutions of education proclaiming about who the Christ is? The one that we believe has transformed our lives. What is the rest of the world saying about him? And then ultimately, it's all coming back to, but who do you say he is? Who do you say I am, Jesus says to his disciples. And then who speaks up, right? We get Peter, the one who's always front and center, running to the, running to the stage, grabbing the microphone, cutting the ears off, uh, just quick to the gun, right, of, of what he believes is happening, should be happening, is true. And he speaks on behalf of the whole group, though. He really does. This is something that they've all been talking about. But he speaks for all of them and says, You are the Messiah. You are literally the Christ, Christos, the anointed one. You are Christ, the son of the living God. And I believe here there's a lot of different views about what Jesus' response was to to Peter. But I believe his response is to what he just revealed that wasn't of a mind, uh, an earthly mindset, but was, had literally been revealed to him by the Father in heaven. It was a heavenly revelation of who Jesus is. And so Jesus' response was, and Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. 
And so immediately, Jesus' first response is, a, is the acknowledgement that, Peter, what you are saying is of the Spirit, not even of the flesh. It is a revelation of heaven. And it is something that the crowds may not understand. It is something that the rest of the world may not perceive. It is the mystery of his nature, and it is the mystery of his kingdom that he is seeking and will establish. And so right now, even for us in 2020, it is no different as Jesus is saying, but who do you say I am? And maybe we've discussed it. Maybe we've talked about it. Maybe we've got small groups where we're, we're living in harmony with one another of who, of who we identify Jesus to be. But the rest of the world has misidentified, has misappropriated his nature, has misunderstood the demonstration of the kingdom. They don't understand. They've got, they've got eyes to see, but they cannot perceive. There's, there's a blinder even in the darkness because the mysteries of the kingdom, the mysteries of the kingdom are not hidden in darkness. They're hidden in light. But they're only made available and revealed to those who will come into the light. Jesus doesn't shroud who he is in darkness. He himself is the light. And so it is only to those who will come into the light that will discover who he is, that the Father will reveal himself, that you are the one who was declared from the beginning, who was already sacrificed from the foundations of the world, as the scripture would say, because the plan of redemption was already rolling in motion since the garden. Because he would buy back what had been given up because of sin. What sin had marred, his sacrifice would purchase back and his reign and rule would be established once again so that fellowship could be restored. And Jesus is revealing his true nature, not only through his demonstrations, but those who would see if they would step into the light beyond the demonstrations, beyond revival, beyond renewal, and see what is behind all of it that it was Jesus establishing his kingdom, his rightful place again. And he's seeking to do that again in and through our lives, in our world around us, in the secular organizations that we may work or become educated in, or those that, hey, we go to the polls and we, yes, we vote and, and we vote hopefully what we believe, but it ultimately, God is not establishing Democratic or Republican, he's establishing a kingdom that is not of this world, not even American. And it is of his kingdom that we are a part of first and foremost. And what he's establishing has to be able to be declared around the world as truth, not just here in the snapshot of what we live in. And it will be a testimony to who he is. A testimony through our lives, through the way we live, through what's important to us. I was listening to a pastor this week, not in my notes. Dear brother, Jay Smith, who's uh, launching a, a church plan. He's about three years in, in, in right, right around Westtown Mall area. And he talked about as, as they were just, it was a conversation that he was having with someone in his church that they said, hey, we, need a vi- we want to video this real quick, what you just said. It's worth sharing. And he said this, he said, you know, I've been on so many mission trips. I've been overseas and you're kind of in that mode that like everything that's happening when you're on that mission trip is a divine opportunity. You know, you're just 
I mean, you paid how many thousands of dollars to go on that trip, right? So you're like, you're hyper-spiritualized. Everything that's happening, you're just looking for those opportunities uh, uh, to minister and to bless someone and to give and, to, and just, that's why you're there. That's the only reason you're on this trip. He said, what if every single one of us decided to live our daily lives that way? That I'm a missionary to where I live. I am a mission, I'm on a mission trip here in Knoxville. That every moment where I'm pumping the gas, where I'm shopping at, at Food City, or the person who's maybe bringing it out to your car because you don't want to go inside, whatever it is, right? That what if we lived on mission and had that same frame of reference that everything we were doing was still a divine moment, was still a divine opportunity to live on mission and to demonstrate and see God establish his kingdom. Would it change the way, these were his questions, and I asked them of myself and us this morning, would it change the way that we spend our time with what we do with our kids, with how we, you know, what we do when we're out and about just in daily life, maybe what we do at work, or those we interact with? What would change about your daily life if you were a missionary to where you live? If you were a missionary to Knoxville, if you were a missionary to your workplace, you had raised money, you had left your family, which some of you have already done all that, right, to come to Knoxville. So maybe it'll be a little bit easier for you to to kind of picture that. But what if God called you here, sent you here, you even got, you've got prayer supporters, you've got people believing that, man, God's going to use you as a missionary there. We can't wait to see in the newsletter and in the reports. And what if we live that way day to day where we're at? What would it change? Think about that with me this week. What would change in your life? And as Peter gives a response of who Christ is, the response from Jesus is not only that what has been revealed to you is spiritual, is otherworldly, has only been revealed to you by my Father, but he begins to say some things to Peter. He says, yes, and I tell you that you are Cephas, Petra, Peter, which, how many of you guys have heard like a play on the words there on, on Peter and then, and then rock, right, upon this rock? Peter, it, it does mean little stone or, or rock. And then Jesus says, and on this rock, there are two different words. Possibly it's just a poetic um, nuance that Jesus was using. Uh, but it also could be intentional that because Peter is a smaller rock and Petros, the second word he uses, is more of a foundational, large rock, like a bedrock. Even it could have been formed naturally or it could have been formed by intention of people that developed it. But it, it is something that is more of a bedrock. And Peter, you are a rock, but it is upon this larger foundation that he will what? That he will build his church, ecclesia. Jesus uses this word twice. Probably pretty important, don't you think? So he says, we call it church, but it's literally just a gathering of a group of people. A gathering upon this. I am too, buddy. I am too. I'm going to go faster. So hungry. (laughs) And so Jesus says back to Peter, that yes, you are a stone, but upon this larger rock. So this is where... And I hate to go down this road too much, but I need to, we need to unpack a little bit of the history of the understanding of this verse. This is where, well, obviously Peter is the head of the church, 
Um, and then anyone that would then follow its lineage back to Peter could be justified as more true or part of the original church, the establishment. And so I'm not going to get too far lost in the weeds on that theology. But here's what I really believe Jesus is saying. Maybe less of, a, of an accepted theology on, on this passage, but it is and upon this foundation of the revelation of who Jesus is that I will establish my group of community around that revelation. Those that have the revelation, the common revelation of who Jesus is, that you are the anointed one, Christos, the Messiah, the one that was predicted to come, son of the living God. And upon that com- the community who shares that, that revelation together, upon that foundation, that revelation of who he is, he will establish the edifice of his people. What was it? The stone that the builders rejected will become what? The cornerstone. It is the foundation of who he is that maybe was rejected by all the others who didn't understand. Who do they say I am? Ah, uh, Maybe you're John the Baptist. You've come back. Maybe you're Elijah, the one who we didn't ever see die to begin with. Maybe you're one of the prophets. They rejected him, misunderstanding who he really was. And it still happens today. But if his people, based upon the revelation of who he is, which dictates the way that we live our lives, would establish upon that revelation the kingdom, the people of God under his reign and under his rule again. This is not something, though, that can be revealed to you by a pastor reciting it, by a book that you read. This is not something that we understand by flesh and by blood. This has to be revealed to us by the Father in heaven, Jesus tells us. This has to be illuminated to our spirit and it's not being shrouded in darkness, remember. This is a revelation that Jesus invites anyone who will step into the light to understand who he is. The keys to the kingdom. And he says, upon this, I will establish my ecclesia, my community of believers. Upon this revelation, I would argue, and he says, and I, I will build my church. The only other place that, um, that Jesus actually uses this word we believe is in Matthew 18, where he's talking about if someone sins against you, um, that you, you eventually go get, if, if they won't um, forgive you, or you, know, you can't make restoration with one, and then you take another, uh, then go to the whole body, go to the community of believers and take them with you. Can you imagine if we did that today? That'd be a lot of fun, wouldn't it? Hey, the church is outside. We just wanted to talk to you again about that issue. <laughs> oh my goodness, that would be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> that's, hey, that's what it says here. So that's where he talks about, that's the only two places. So it's, it's restoration between the community of believers and it's also restoration between God and his people, right? He's going to establish those who have this revelation of who he is. And so somewhere there's a distortion of that between the way we relate to one another Right? Somehow the love God and love people is all still connected. The greatest commandments are still in where he uses ecclesia. And he says, I will build my church in the gates of hell. The Hades will not prevail against it. Now, that was a common phrase for them. For them to use the word Hades, no big deal. It, was, you know, it represented death and Sheol, the abyss. Uh, it represented you know, all the things of the grave, finality. And he's saying, even those things will not be able to overcome it. 
because what your revelation unlocks for you is an eternity of life everlasting. You will not be overcome by death, hell, and the grave because the one that has been revealed to you will overcome it. And he goes on in this passage of how he'll overcome it. His disciples don't believe that's the way that the kingdom will be established, right? And they argue with him. That may be next week. I don't think I have time this week to get into that. But he says, I will give you the keys. And so I've got some keys out in the back that um, I ordered. My kids helped me put together. And they smell like Amazon packaging. And, uh, and so I want you to grab one of these. Pick one of the four different keys that are back there. Grab one of these and think about what God is not only seeking to demonstrate, but to establish in your life and in our world. He's given us the keys to the kingdom, and the keys unlock so much based on the revelation of who Jesus is and who he says he is, then everything else must be true. And the keys unlock things in our relationships. They unlock the promises that God has made to us through his word. The keys unlock the fullness of the spirit that we no longer live according to the flesh, but we walk according to the spirit. We no longer live under condemnation. The keys are attached to so many things because it unlocks the doors of the kingdom. It is the gateway. And so as a reminder, grab one of those in the back. Those online, gotta, guess you got to come in person. I guess, I guess we can mail you one if you really can't come in person, but... He says, I will establish my church, I will build, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew loves that phrase, the kingdom of God, almost interchangeable. And this is where some people get lost. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Has anybody ever heard a message just around that? Verse right there, very Pentecostal, very charismatic, binding and loosing, right? There's books out there. They're not Presbyterian or Baptist usually. Um, they're very spirit-filled, and, and we've got a whole theology built around. It goes to the extreme of name it and claim it, all the way to spiritual warfare, right? And, and there's probably some truth to, to a little bit of all of it, to be honest with you. Usually a lot of theology has nuggets of truth in it, and then you know we end up going different directions and taking it further. But the binding and loosing was a very common thing for them to understand then. This was actually a, a Jewish uh, Mishnic phrase, the binding and loosing. And you hear it mentioned in the New Testament, but you have it in their writings. You have it in, uh, in non-canonical, uh, non-Old Testament writings as well, the idea of binding and loosing. So Jesus was talking about something that they would understand that, hey, whatever you forbid with an indisputable authority and whatever you permit with that same authority, it will match what is happening in heaven. He was saying you have more power. You've heard me talk about it, right? The, the power we have as believers because we are attached to the Almighty that sometimes we have to even be careful that we don't abuse that. You see people even using their talents, their gifts that God innately gave them, but they'll, they'll use them and abuse them for worldly gain. And you'll see even spirit people who are attuned to the Father maybe even pervert it. Those who have come to a knowledge of salvation in Jesus, that they have perverted the gifts and the calling. You, we, can, we have the potential to do that. 
I believe ultimately we'll receive, we'll reap what we sow, we'll be there on the day of judgment and we'll hear that from the Father. And so we tread lightly, thus teachers will be held to a higher standard because there is an authority, a power that has been entrusted. There is a responsibility with what you're rightly dividing. And so we come and understand that, hey, as people who have been gathered around this revelation of who Jesus is, that the kingdom is being established upon the chosen one, the, pre, the prophesied one, the Messiah, that you have the ability to unlock the gates to this revelation for people. You have the ability to take this revelation to the ends of the earth even and hear every nation, tribe, and tongue call upon the name of the Lord and they will be saved. This is the paradigm of Scripture that we see that you God has chosen to use. Does he have to use me and you? No, but he is going to use his people. And, and we have the option to say, well, are we still going to be a part of that? Because even as his people, you know, we don't all have to step into the fullness of what he's revealing in the light of where he's moving. That's a choice that we have. And so he's going to establish his kingdom, and I'm going to say it with or without us. Not saying that he won't do it with his people, because it will always be through his people It just depends on are you going to be a part of that group of people that he says yes, because you have said yes, and you echo the name of the Messiah in the way that you live your life, the revelation of what the kingdom is established upon. And so this Old Testament language that was common for them, it's a term that has spiritual implications for sure, but there's not a lot of clarity on what is he really saying. But I believe that we have the ability to unlock not only to bring salvation to the lost, but even the binding and loosing. Isaiah uses it when he talks about restoring injustice. He talks about binding and loosing when he talks about restoring injustice. And there's this eternal perspective, as we talked about, where death, hell, the grave, it's removed from our purview. It's no longer the perspective through which we see things. But eternity has been unlocked and we live in a larger scope, understanding our life is a blip on the radar. We see it as Peter would say, right? That the flowers fade, and, 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 but the word of the Lord endures forever. He is establishing his kingdom in and through his people. And ultimately, I see the binding and the loosing while there's a lot of true thoughts in in some of the various areas that you could go with this, ultimately is whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Are we binding things that aren't already bound in heaven? I don't necessarily think so. I don't think that there were loosing something here that wasn't already loose in heaven. I think we're bringing the two into agreement. Jesus has taken a phrase that they commonly heard and understood, and he's saying this authority that you now have, you're going to bring a li- alignment between heaven and earth. You're going to fulfill what I have taught you to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really teach us to pray, Lord. And he says, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We began to manifest that with the keys that he has given us. We begin to use those spiritually as we unlock salvation for individuals 
and they begin to find heaven in their earthen vessel, we begin to unlock that as we do pray through a city and tear down strongholds, yes, and bring alignment between heaven, what is free in heaven, what is loose, what is bound, alignment with areas and territories here on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then he says, now don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. (laughs) Don't tell anyone. I want to make sure that my identity is revealed to you, my disciples, but I'm not ready for it to be revealed to the crowds. You will do that. You will establish the community of believers around this revelation. And we see Peter in that first sermon in Acts chapter 2, in an answer to their prayers and waiting, right? The promised Holy Spirit comes and he begins to preach Christ crucified, the Messiah, the Holy One. And the kingdom begins to become established. There's demonstrations all throughout it, right? That's why it's called Acts of the Apostle. But it is more than just the acts of the apostles because it is pointing to a kingdom that is being established and formed on earth. And ultimately, one day, he will establish that kingdom forever. He will establish his reign and rule, not just in the hearts of men, but all the powers of the air. They will all bow their knee. There will be no more tears, no more sadness. He will wipe away those things from our eyes. Because he will establish his reign and his rule forever. You see, not who all, not all who see the demonstration will give preeminence, will make him their ruler in their hearts. Not all who see the demonstration give preeminence in their heart to his reign and rule in their lives. But we can begin to spread that message of his good news, built upon the revelation of who he is throughout our community, our known world. Broken lives will be made whole. The poor will be made rich, and the rich will have found their home. The lost will be found, and all will say, Jesus is Lord. That's his kingdom established. And the keys are in our hands to be able to declare this to those who are in darkness, that they may come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light, as Peter would say. And so we seek to not only demonstrate it, but also to see it established. And Bruce, if you'd come up, I'm going to wrap up here shortly. And as we see this, his kingdom established, we see, I think, three, three primary things as you're going about your daily life. Look and see how these things begin to happen. Three Ds I'm going to give you that is, is Bruce's plan that we're going to bring this home. The first is dwelling. I believe that as we begin to unlock with those keys, we begin to create a place for him to, him to habitate, for him to live, for him to dwell the dwelling of the king. And we see this in Scripture. We see this uh, from the very beginning at the Garden of Eden is God with us. And what is the tabernacle other than God with us? And who is Jesus coming other than God with us? We are literally Emmanuel, God with us. 
And so his dwelling, as we see his kingdom come, it is his presence, it is what is in heaven, it is the king where he has his throne, but the earth becoming his footstool. And we establish this place as we begin to see his reign and rule work its way through our lives, work its way to those around us, that they submit to the creator who created them to fulfill the plan and purpose that he has for them. And we recognize that sin has fractured this dwelling and the relationship we were intended to have all along. But God came on mission to seek and to restore that which had been lost all along as God with us. He does this through the cross, saved by grace through faith, making a way for redemption in all areas of our life to ultimately bring us into the dominion of his beloved son. And that's the second D I want to leave with you. We see his dwelling come in order for his dominion to be present and established. This was God's plan for us all along that we would not dwell, not only dwell with God, but that we are able to operate under his dominion, extending his dominion in the earth through our own lives. We are going to tabernacle, to habitate and operate as a people and it's, it's, a, it's interesting to do a little word study on how often the Old Testament as well as the New Testament talks about how you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Through the prophets, and I will gather my people, and I will be their God, and they will be mine. And, and then in the New Testament, he's creating a kingdom, right? A, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that are called out, literally ek. Lacia, the, the church, it, it comes from the word ek kaleo. Ek means out, and kaleo means called, called out. The, these are the called out ones, the ones that have heard my voice and have responded, that have stepped into the light, that are formed around this revelation of who I am. And he says, This is how we will see the dominion, his footstool established here on earth. And then finally, his dynasty where he will reign and rule forever. We have been invited to work alongside Christ, our elder brother, as joint heirs in the eternal promises of God to see God's kingdom come in its full. And we seek to establish his dynasty, his dwelling, his dominion for all eternity, beginning now, but revealed in that final day when he returns. Now I want to ask you, would you join me? Would you join me from the revelation of who Jesus is to step further into the light that he is revealing to us? This that can only be revealed to us by the Spirit. That what he is wanting to do in our relationships, in our personal life, bring freedom to the things that abound us in all areas, the infirmities, the finite, all of it would bow its knee, would ultimately find its place because it is See, it has seen who the Lord truly is and his promises are greater than anything we have to face today. His promises are greater than anything we have to persevere through. That we see that he is good. That he's working all things out as we sang this morning for the good of those who are, love him and are called according to his purpose. This is his kingdom that we hold on to who he is, his nature in everything that he is doing in everything that he has said. Would you bow your heads with me as we wrap up? Father, this is an idea, a topic that is beyond us. And 
and one that only I know has to be revealed to our spirits by the Spirit of God. And Lord, I ask that you would do that. I ask that we're not just on a theoretical journey of understanding words and nuances, but would you unpack the spiritual nature of what this means? Your kingdom come, your will be done. That we would be a part of your reign and rule in our lives, in our families, in everything that we're, that we're a part of, our relationships, our work, everything, God, is, is, it is as worship. It is as worship to you, Lord. God, and I pray for those that are, that are struggling to fully step into every avenue of your kingdom in their life today, God, that there's some, they know there's some misalignments. They know that there's some things that are not fully lining up with heaven in their lives today. And they would say, I need to step more fully into God's plan and purpose for my life in this area. And if you're here today and you would say, Michael, I want prayer for a specific area that I'm walking through right now that I know I need to surrender to the king. I know I need to submit to him. Whether it's a way of thinking, whether it's a, a habitual sin, whether it is a family member that, is, that has gone their own way and you're believing the Lord to, to return them to his promises of the way that you established and saw to teach them. And you would say, Michael, I need prayer. Would you just raise your hand? I want to pray with you this week. I want to pray with you right now. If there's anything at all, the kingdom's ways, his kingdom come. Okay, thank you, Lord. God, I just pray for your people in this place, God. I pray that uh, this week as we go out, that you would continue to just let your spirit uh, stew over these thoughts and these ideas of your kingdom being not only demonstrated, but established through your people. God, I just pray that you would give us the grace to walk humbly before our God, to see the keys that you have given us, to be able to unlock this revelation and to see justice restored in a place for your throne. Truth and justice are its foundations, God. Bless your people in their going and in their coming. Let your face shine upon us. We thank you, Jesus. We declare that you are Lord. You are good and you reign forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.